we thank you for your presence here. And Lord, I pray what the Apostle Paul prayed here for this body this morning, for those listening. Lord, I pray that the God of our Lord and Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give all of us a spirit of wisdom, of revelation in the knowledge of You. Lord, open up the eyes of our understanding, being enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of Your calling, what are the riches of the glory of Your inheritance in the saints. What is the exceedingly great greatness of Your power towards us who believe according to the working of Your mighty power, which You worked in Christ when You raised Him from the dead and You seated Him at, at, at Your right hand in heavenly places. And I pray as well, Lord, that You, according to Your riches, would open up our understanding Lord, that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge and understanding that, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, that's Your desire. That's what You want for us. You wouldn't have prayed it through the Apostle Paul, Lord, if that wasn't Your desire for Your people, for Your church. To know You, Lord. To have our understanding enlightened and open, Lord. That we would know the depths, the riches of Your love, of who You are, of Your character, Lord. Of all the things You reveal to us about Yourself in Your Word, Lord. And I thank You for the Holy Spirit, the revealer of truth the One who is able to open up our understanding, who reveals the deep things of God to us. So Lord, I'm asking that Your Holy Spirit would do that for all of us this morning as we look at Your Word, Lord, so that we can know the things You're wanting us to know, Lord. So that we can be what You're wanting us to be, Lord. Salt and light in this dark world, Lord. So that people will truly know that You came to the earth. That You lived a sinless life and You died a death for all of us. And You bore the sins of humanity and You rose from the dead. And You're alive, Lord. I pray, God, that what You do today in us will proclaim that in a greater way in the days to come. So God, work in us that, I pray this morning, as we look at Your Word, Lord. Speak to us. Accomplish Your will in Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Praise the Lord. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Dr. Abby uh, went through 1 Corinthians 12 on Wednesday night. And he'll be going through 14. I believe next week. And in sandwich in between those chapters is this chapter. And uh, there's a reason why God placed this where He did. There's a reason why Paul, in the middle of talking about the gift, 
and how God works through His body and how God imparts these gifts to His people and uses them to edify and to glorify Him, Paul, in the middle of it, and he says this at the end of chapter 12 and verse 31, he says, earnestly desire the best gifts. But then he says, but yet I show you a more excellent way. The Corinthian church was struggling. Paul was addressing issues they were having there. He was addressing issues that were written to him, questions that were asked of him. So he's dealing with a church that is very gifted in the gifts of the Spirit. God's moving, but there's problems, there's issues, and he's helping them. They ranked themselves on their spiritual gifts. They competed with one another. They viewed the gifts in the wrong way, and because of that, they suffered disunity among them. It wasn't unifying them, it was actually disunifying them. So Paul is showing them what they need to major on. That's what's happening here in this chapter, but I want to I stay with this. God desires, God wants a body that is operating in all of the fullness that He provided so that He can manifest Himself through a people with Him as the head. People operating in all the gifts that He has equipped the church with to fulfill our mission. But what we're going to see is if it's lacking this most important part, it becomes nothing. It actually becomes a negative instead of a positive. If love isn't what compels and motivates, all that we do, everything God wants to do gets corrupted. And it doesn't glorify Him. So Paul says here, starting now in chapter 13, verse 1, he says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become like sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, though I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. There's no benefit to my soul. There's no benefit to your soul. Even if you have all these things, but there's no love, there's no benefit to the soul. It won't save a person even if these things maybe are evident, if there's no love, it won't save them. People, Christians, or people can have the name Christian. People can have a name that they're alive, but really they're dead inside. Love is the only thing that will remain in the end. Love is the only thing that will follow us into eternity. 
Love never fails. The gifts are only a means to an end. The gifts at, at one point, at some point, will cease to be. When we see Jesus, when we enter into glory, the gifts aren't necessary anymore. But love continues. And what we do about love determines our eternity. And that's why he says, I show you a more excellent way. He doesn't say, so let's just forget about all those gifts. He's not saying that at all. And he even begins the next chapter, again encouraging them. That's not the point here. God is love. And love is the only thing that will remain. And that's the main thing we should be focusing on as His body, as His people. God is love. How do we understand this? We understand this because 1 John 4 tells us in verse 9, in this the love of God was manifested to us. We know God's love because He chose to manifest it to us. How did He do that? He sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if I have encountered this love, if you have encountered this love, if I have known what it's like to be a wretched, miserable, poor, blind sinner that all of a sudden has his eyes open and realizes my utter, utter lost condition that has no way of remedy, but yet in that moment sees the remedy in the work of the cross. The message of the cross, which is the power of God to those who are being saved. God does that. God reveals that in the human heart. God brings light into darkness. And when we embrace that light, He opens up our understanding so we'll see. But we have to embrace that. And unless He opens our eyes to see the cross, we'll utterly despair in hopelessness. But the hope comes when we see Him who died for us. God sent His only Son that we might not perish but have everlasting life. A true born-again believer has had that revelation. Both. Both of those revelations. And it's really the mercy and love of God that was revealed to them in the message of the cross. And so these qualities of love that we're going to look at in this chapter that are described in these next few verses should be should be becoming more and more real to us. They shouldn't be fading away. Every day as we grow in our relationship, every day as we gaze upon Him, every day we sup with Him over His Word, more and more and more the reality of His mercy and His love to us. That's why Paul prayed that prayer that you would know more and more and more since I've heard of your faith, that you would know more and more and more the love of God, that He would open up your understanding because God wants you to know His love. 
salvation is to know Him. And to know Him, part of knowing Him is knowing His love. And Jesus commanded us to love as He loved us. But we have to see God's love first. It's impossible if you haven't seen His love first. And we see them in these verses. And as we see them, as we look at these verses, we have to first understand, this is how He loved me. This is how He loved you. I heard it described one time, we have to learn how to love ourselves like that. And that is so unscriptural. No, we have to understand that's how He loved us. And then we'll love others in that way. So let's look at these qualities. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. I want you to think of a lion right here. Anybody been to the zoo, seen a real lion up front? Okay. Is, is that something you would want to go up to and poke? No. Well, Jesus, one of his references to him is the lion of Judah. You all know, you know, C.S. Lewis, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, right? Aslan. It's a picture of Jesus, this lion. And he's safe, but he's dangerous. It says in there. And the picture I had in my mind is God is a lion. God is holy. And mankind for thousands of years have been jesting and poking Him. Just imagine that. There's a lion here and you're walking up to it and you're poking it in the face. You're jeering at it. You're spitting on it. You're laughing at it. You're taunting it. And that lion understands what it can do to you. But he doesn't act. He's long-suffering. He's patient. Because as Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand yet. And so God is long-suffering with all of humanity. And He's long-suffering with us even when we continue to poke Him. And as He's long-suffering, He's kind about it. You know, if it was me, when you poke me, you don't always get kindness. But even when you're poking Him, He's kind. Think about yourself. Think about when someone is irritating you and they're poking you, whether it's with their words or... Maybe you just don't like their personality, or they're doing something, or you have a circumstance, and it just keeps poking you, poking you, poking you. And maybe you're bearing with it, but are you being kind? What's coming out of you? What's coming out of me? All that came out of Jesus, and you see it in Isaiah 53, when we see this lion going as a lamb to the slaughter, silent as they're poking Him, slapping Him, taunting Him. It's amazing when you think about it. The the love of God, the lowliness of God, the kindness of God, it's beyond human comprehension and it should 
That's what should lead us to repentance. Not more obstinacy. Not more rebellion. If anything, it should cause us to shudder that we would sin against such a holy but yet loving, long-suffering God who, who has the right to devour us, but yet restrains Himself because He's long-suffering and He doesn't desire that any would perish, but that all would come to repent. So He waits and He waits as they're prodding and poking. And then He's even kind about it. It's amazing. It goes on, love does not envy. It doesn't grieve when someone else has a greater earthly portion or is maybe smarter or spiritual than you are or I am. It doesn't look at someone and want what they want or what they have. It doesn't envy. And we need to ask ourselves a question like, do I rejoice for others when others are more successful, being blessed for God? Do, or do I get resentful? Do I wish I could get or have what they have? Love always rejoices because the other person's happy. They're actually willing that others would be preferred before them. We see that spirit in the... Uh, the life of John the Baptist. You know, Lord, Lord, everyone's going to Jesus. I must decrease. So he, he, he wasn't envious that now even his followers were going after Jesus. He wasn't wanting what Jesus had. He actually was wanting to get smaller so Jesus could be exalted. And we see that in the life of Jesus. His whole desire was to see the Father exalted. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't put itself forward. It doesn't want to be noticed and applauded. It wants God to be glorified in everything. It wants God to get the glory. I think about the Apostle Paul earlier in, in uh, the second chapter where he says, I don't want to preach with wisdom and pizzazz and you know, with the persuasiveness. Uh, I want to preach in humility. I want to preach in fear and trembling. I want to preach in weakness so that God would come forth so that people won't even see me. And their faith will be in God. It's not about me. Get your eyes off me. Get your eyes off Apollos. He was never putting himself forward. Does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Every man who is full of the love of God is also full of humility. There is no man so humble as that man whose heart has been cleansed from sin and he knows it. A person who is puffed up makes themselves extremely important and others less important. Love seeks to make the other one important. Love does not behave rudely. A better word for that is unseemly. Uh, it's behavior or actions that just aren't proper in a setting. It, it, it's just rude. You know, I, I just think about, you know, someone come walking in and spouting off and just 
saying harsh things or, or vile things, and they're just rude. It's just a situation that doesn't, it's not conducive for those kinds of actions. It's not glorifying God. It's rude. It, avo- it's, uh, it avoids for the sake of others and for the name of Christ all conduct that may seem unworthy or may be a cause of accusation. I thought about First Peter 2, verse 12, where it says, Let your conduct be honorable among the Gentiles. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, by your behavior, when they observe you, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know, sometimes Christians can be rude about their faith. And it's out of place, and it doesn't glorify God. You know, even maybe they're fighting for a cause or whatever, but they're rude about it. It's not proper, and it doesn't glorify God. Okay, love doesn't seek its own. In other words, love is not selfish. It's not looking out for its own needs, but the neighbor's also. So we can ask ourselves, do we, do I tend to have things revolve around me and my happiness and my satisfaction? Am I focused on my blessing or am I focused on meeting the needs around me? Are there things I do or expect from others that revolve around getting what I want? Or do I rather want to please God and put his or her needs before my own? Jesus came to do the Father's will. Jesus, when he went to the cross, put your need, he put my need before his own. Because he did what was pleasing to the Father. And he wants us to love as he loved. He wants us to put the needs of others before our own. That's what love does. It doesn't seek its own. Love is not... Provoked. So again, another reference to the prodding here. Uh, we counsel many people over the years, and whenever I hear, well, she made me angry, or he made me angry, or this person did that, and now I'm this. And, and so you want to say, like, does that person have that much power over you? That they make you angry? No, you chose to be angry. They prodded. And because there's still self there, because there's still how I want to be treated or whatever it is they violated, you got angry. But they can't make you angry. You got angry. They prodded Jesus to no end. And he never got angry. Good thing we wouldn't be here. not provoked. You know, so how do I respond when I'm prodded? How do do you respond when you're prodded? Do I get angry? Do I vent my irritation? Do I, or do I choose at that moment to do something different from the heart? We have that choice. A person who is yielding to God's love looks at things through his eyes. In other words, they see people the way he does. 
And God, so th- that's why God is long-suffering, because God understands if a person is sinning, if, if a person is doing something contrary to His will, they're only hurting themselves. They're only bringing judgment upon themselves. And God wants to spare people. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He doesn't desire that, even though we do sometimes. We want Him to pay. He's not like that. That's why you could poke him, poke him, poke him, poke him. And he's long-suffering. He wants us to be that way. I just want to say to you, if you will go over these qualities and allow them to examine you, you'll learn how to cry out to God for the Holy Spirit. That's all I'll say. You'll learn how to look to God for what you don't have in yourself. And you'll learn to be persistent. If you really want to be like Jesus, you will find you don't have one ounce of what this is describing. I don't have one ounce of what that's described, but yet, He does, and He dwells within me. And I could yield to Him at any time. I can make a choice in my heart and let the flow of His love come out of my life, come out of my mouth. Because He's there. He wants to reveal Himself to me. That's what this vessel is for, to glorify Him now. But I have to give it to Him. I have to yield it to Him. And you will find that even though someone provokes you, that you can love with His love if you choose to yield to Him. It's really humbling yourself and then God gives you the grace to do it. Okay, love thinks no evil. Where does your mind go in regard to other people? Where does it naturally go? Does it tend to jump to conclusions? Does it tend to believe the worst about others? Love believes the best about someone's motives and intentions until proven wrong by the facts. Even then, let's say it's proven. Ha! I was right. God says, love them anyway. Pray for them. Don't even say I was right. Don't gloat in it. You should grieve. And then you should bear them to God and pray for them. Because that's what God does for us. We'll, We'll see. He doesn't rejoice when sin is revealed in someone's life. He, he grieves over sin. And He wants people to turn to Him. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. You know, think about it. Do, do, do I, I secretly take pleasure when I hear about someone else being exposed? You know, that they've done something wrong? Love doesn't rejoice in the sins of others. Love weeps either at sin or the folly of others. Even an enemy, love weeps. It takes no pleasure in hearing about someone who has failed or sinned and then repeating it. It takes no pleasure in that. But it rejoices in the truth. In other words, it desires that that sin could be repented of and that that person can be forgiven and restored to God. Because it believes the truth 
that if I confess my sins, God is faithful. He's just and He'll forgive me. He'll cleanse me from all of my unrighteousness. And then love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Do I bear people? Do I bear circumstances? Do I bear my trials? the way Jesus did, the way Jesus bears me. All of them. Because it bears all things. Do I believe the best in all things for people, for my circumstances, about God? Do I trust? Do I hope in all things? Do I trust God? Do I believe God that He has, that He will do what He promised not just for me, but for that other person or for this circumstances. Love hopes in God. Love trusts in God. Jesus had to trust and hope in His Father. That's why He could commend His Spirit into the Father's hands. That's why He couldn't trust Himself for the Father. And love endures all things. In other words... Instead of murmuring and complaining about the burden, this person I got to deal with, this circumstance I got to deal with, I patiently bear up under it. I see other people, I see my circumstances, whatever they may be, as direct agents of God to change me, to refine me, to make me more and more like Him. So I embrace them. I actually count it joy, and I yield myself to it, and God's love is manifested more and more and more in my life. You know, when you do that, you learn more and more about His love. It's not until you enter in that you get a greater revelation, because you realize it's not easy, and the more you do it, you realize His love is so beyond the limits of human love. Because this is agape love. This is God's love. It's not a humanistic love. Humanistic love has always got a twist in it. There's always something selfish in it. And there's always limits to it. There's no limits to God's love. It never fails. That's why it's the more excellent way. Love will abide forever. Everything else will cease to exist. But God's love will endure forever. That's why it should be our highest goal as His followers, as His believers. That should be the greatest thing we are seeking for God to work out into our lives. And He uses mostly your relationships, your Christian relationships, your unsaved family relationships. Your difficult, your difficult circumstances. That's what he uses. Love will follow us into eternity. If we have received it from God, it is being perfected in us. So we're going to see what I said earlier, why love endures forever. Why we should focus on love. Because we see from what he says here, it's because... 
these will one day, when we see Him, when we are in heaven, cease to be. Because He says here in verse 8, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. And I'll focus on the, the, this child image he's giving. The, the idea is that the knowledge we have now, you can compare it, let me say it this way, the knowledge we have now compared to what we will have in heaven, it's like an infant to an adult. How much knowledge and reasoning does an infant have? How much speech does it have? It babbles, right? It's it's like incoherent in the beginning stages, right? It speaks in you know fragment sentences. Doesn't even know how to put together a whole sentence. That's what we're like compared to what we're going to be like in heaven. Just think about that. The future state of blessedness is so far beyond the perfection that can be attained in this world as our adult state of Christianity as above our state of natural intimacy, I mean, sorry, infancy, where we understand only as children, speak only a few broken articulate words, and reason only as children reason, having few ideas and little knowledge. Therefore, when I became a man, I put away. Rather, now that I have become a man, I have done away with the things of the child. When in heaven, we will put away those things. They won't be needed anymore. And then he goes on in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part But then, I shall know just as I also am known. 1 John 3, verse 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. I'll never forget the testimony of a famous Christian writer, a theologian, who on his deathbed had the heavens opening up to him. And I guess he saw heaven. He saw Jesus. And one of his last words was, all my writings are hay and stubble. I see him. Someone we'd read and go, wow, this is deep. He sees Jesus and immediately realizes, I didn't know what I was talking about. We think we know so many things. A lot of times, the things we think we know are the things that bring division in the church. Love is what unites the body of Christ. And that's why Paul is emphasizing this. 
love is what true children of God walk in. I just finished a book called Until Unity by Francis Chan. I'm going to read some stuff out of there. But I would encourage all of us to read the book of 1 John, the whole book. Read it. Meditate on it. Because what we see there, it's not all about just maintaining my line of doctrinal exactness that makes me a true child of God. It's whether or not we've received His love, whether or not we keep His commandments, whether or not His love flows from us to people around us. Read the book of 1 John. So this is a quote from him. Rather than staying on the path of maturity, which does include, include increasing knowledge, we should be studying, we should be learning Scripture and learning to be approved, right? Um, so he's not saying that, but many believers take a different road that focuses primarily on attaining information. In America, we do that very well. We have so many books and conferences, so many things we avail ourselves of. Learning, 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 learning. But while they're growing in knowledge, they're not growing in humility. While they're filling their minds with information, they're not emptying themselves for the needy. They aren't leading others by living a life with them and modeling the fruit of the Spirit. As I was praying this morning, the word, the phrase that kept coming to me over and over again was, enter in to the needs of others. Enter into the needs of others. It's what God did. It's what He made the body of Christ for so that we can learn how to enter in to someone else's needs, especially those of the household of faith. Then we'll know how to do it to the lost. That's what it means to love. That's what it means to be moved with compassion. It's to enter into someone's life. It's a deep thing. It's not shallow. It costs something. It's what God did for us. And constantly, He constantly enters in with us. And He's wanting us to do that. That's what the body of Christ is for. That's what Paul's dealing with with this church. They're priding themselves on all they're doing and the gifts and this and that. And, and they're neglecting one another. They're not entering into one another's needs. And so Paul's helping them. As a result, we have people who see themselves as mature because they know so many things about Scripture, but their lives look like nothing like Christ. They don't take steps of faith. They don't risk their lives and livelihoods for the sake of the Gospel. True discipleship involves entering into someone's life. Caring for the lost. Hurting together. Experiencing victories together. Disappointments together. In America, we train leaders. We send them to classes. We send them to schools by using classrooms as the, the primary venue for training. We end up focusing on the one thing we can teach in the classroom, information. While knowledge is a part of, 
of maturing as, as a believer, many have made it the only part. This has wreaked havoc on the church and actually prevents real maturity from happening. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 8.1 when he says, Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. When we equate maturity with knowledge, it's easy to justify a life spent acquiring knowledge that finds fault in others. And man, you see that on the internet so much. It's almost like people delight in it, you know, finding fault with everyone else. Well, they're wrong about this, and this is what we know. And it's, I told Rose, I said, God must grieve when he looks down on his children. Because, you know, we're, uh, most of us are brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we don't agree on everything. Um, I understand there's false teachers that need to be called out, but a lot of it is really just brothers and sisters in Christ nitpicking and pointing their fingers at one another, and it doesn't glorify God at all. So he finishes in verse 13. He says, Now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Well, Jesus said in John 13, 35, this is how people are going to know you're my disciples. Not by all your knowledge. It's going to be by your love for one another. There can be no healthy functioning body without love. That's why love is more important. We can have gifts, yet without love, as we see, it profits us nothing. Without love, we can be assured um, uh, I'm sorry, without love, we cannot be assured that God knows us. Read First John. Without love, we fail to declare to the world that Jesus has come in the flesh. So Galatians 6.10 exhorts us, tells us, as we have opportunity to do good to all, but especially to those who are of the household of faith, you know, many times we get this backwards, and I think I'm guilty of it too. It's easier for me to love a drug addict on the street sometimes than God's people. Sometimes even than my wife. Anybody relate? Oh, we could be real compassionate and all that with certain people, but then when we get to church, it's a different story. Or if we're at home, it's a different story. Right? Little poke and there we go. Right? Anyone ever say to you, like, when you're talking to someone, maybe on the street or you get a phone call, like, who is that person? Why don't you talk to me that way? <laughs> How do I know that? Because <laughs> I've had it said to me. really not funny. That's scary. Look at what's going on in there. So I want you to imagine this, okay? Because this is what God wants to do here. That's what, this is what this is all about, okay? And He is doing it, okay? But imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine a church like this, okay? 
In humility, everybody considers everyone else more important than themselves. And it's not forced. It's just who they are. You know, they're not doing it because they were told it's just who they are. It's who Christ is making them to be. They're so overwhelmed by God's love in their own life, they don't need anything. They don't want anything. They don't just say encouraging things to you, but they can tell, but you can tell that deep inside they really mean it. They genuinely love you. They've been praying for you all throughout the week. Everyone works his or her way out through the room when they're at church. Seeing how they can be a blessing to somebody. God has given some of them words of encouragement, some an exhortation. Others are reading scriptures to you, praying for you. Some have physical gifts that the Holy Spirit told them to give you because they're members of the same body. They grieve together. They celebrate together. There isn't a person in the room who wouldn't give his life for you. Look around. This is true. Look around. It's true. It should be. It's more than a family. Everyone treats others like they're members of the same body. They grieve together. Oh, sorry. <laughs> there isn't a family who wouldn't open up their home to you if they were in need. Rich or poor, no one viewed their possessions belonging to themselves. Everyone was a giver. There's no gossip. Hallelujah. <laughs> There's no ungodly judging. There's no fighting. They live like one body. God is clearly in the midst. Miracles start taking place. The deep love results in God releasing power from heaven. Your friends are cured of sicknesses and ailments. Unbelievers encounter Christ for the first time. Words of knowledge, prophecy are spoken. The greatest miracle, there's joy, there's peace. Everyone feels in the presence of God. You bask in the joy of knowing this isn't just a gathering. This is life. This is your heavenly family this is your church. This is what God desires for us. This is what He's after. A lot of times, leaders can base their decisions on what will draw crowds. That wasn't the model of Christ. Actually, <laughs> Jesus made decisions based on his father's priorities, and it actually resulted in fewer followers. Because the church mainly hasn't followed his model, um, what we have is people flocking to services that would have never followed the real Jesus. Think about that. They would have never followed the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. People don't like getting that close or to invest that much time. Uh, we like our space. Existing as a family sometimes is asking too much. <laughs> 
But John 13, 34 says, A new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is what God wants. This is what He's looking for. Groups, bodies of mature believers that are learning to love one another. He's wanting believers all around the world to be one body. So when the world looks, they don't see all the divisions. They see a people that love one another, people that are united under Christ. It's not going to happen until there's a lot of humility and we learn the greatest thing, which is love and how to love one another. I read this book and uh, it really is the cry of my heart because I grieve personally over it. I've experienced it so much over the years and you just know it grieves the heart of God because you read in, in Philippians 2 what brings joy to his heart and it's that his people are like-minded, that they're one. I mean, it's all over Scripture. That's what Jesus prayed for us. That's where the blessing is when we're all one. Christians, this is another quote from him, Christians seem to want to continue learning their whole lives without a not, well, I'm sorry, in a non-committal environment where they aren't expected to actually act on what they have learned. We're so prone to forget that Jesus literally and specifically said that the two most important commandments are to love God and to love people. So I'm going to finish with uh, 1 John 4 if you want to turn there. And I'm going to read verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we should, or we ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, then God abides in us. And His love has been perfected in us. By this, we know we abide in Him. And He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. That's why, like I said, this shouldn't drive us to despair. You know, I'll just be honest. When you study this for hours and hours, and you're seeing how much you're not like that, you tend to want to go that way, but then you remember, but, but I have your Spirit in me. You've given me the whole... And you told me to ask. And so, you should let it drive you to Him. 
And it should put such a gratitude in you that He has made a way for you to be conformed into His image. And really, all you have to do, all I have to do is repent. And say, Lord, I don't have this love. Lord, I repent, Lord. I, I've done this, Lord. I've treated this one that. I've said, Lord, forgive me. God, cleanse me. Wash me. Lord, and fill me with Your Spirit. God, I need You, Lord. I need Your Holy Spirit, Lord. I need grace, Lord. I realize now I can't do this on my own, but Lord, thank You. Thank You for the Holy Spirit. Thank You that Your love has been poured out into my heart. Lord, I yield myself to You, Lord. God, I want Your love to be poured out of me, God. So, Lord, I surrender this vessel to You, Lord. I give up my rights, Lord. I give up what I think I know, Lord, in Jesus. I ask you to just work through me. And you yield to Him. He's given us His Spirit. And we've seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son and Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. That needs to be real to us. And we have known and believed the love that God has, has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. And love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been, not been made perfect in love. And we love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You know, the cross demonstrates how radically God loved us. And I told Rose yesterday, the sense I got is God is calling us all into our first love. And a first love is really just when we came to Him at the beginning and we realized our eyes were opened. And we realized our filth, our wretchedness. We realized how dirty we were. We were naked. We were ashamed. But yet God had mercy on us. And He covered our shame. And we opened the door of our heart and He came into our lives. And, and everything changed. And we tasted of His love. And that's all we knew then. But it was enough. And then we learned things, and we learned more, and we learned more, and we forgot, or we forget sometimes. And so God wants you to come back into that first love. He doesn't want you getting bogged down on side issues. And we'll talk about chapter 12, chapter 14. We'll talk about pursuing God and having all that God wants to, for us, but... We have to keep the more excellent way always in view. And that should always be our goal. As God's people and for this body, love has to be the preeminent thing. 
that we all pursue together. And we need to believe God to perfect that among us. Then the world will know Jesus has come. Then Grant County will know that Jesus has come. So Lord, I thank You this morning that You revealed Your love to all of us here in this room, Lord. I thank You, Lord, that You opened our eyes to the wonder of who You are, Lord. And Lord, I pray for every person here. I pray for those listening on, Lord. I pray for any, Lord, that have not tasted of Your love, Lord. They don't know Your love. They don't know what it's like to be cleansed of their sins and to be made in in right relationship with You. Lord, but You're knocking. You're always knocking on the human heart, Lord. And Lord, if there's any out there that You've been knocking on their door, but Lord, they're resisting You. They're saying, I'm good, I'm fine, I don't need You. Maybe they're relying on their church attendance. Maybe they're relying on their good works. Whatever it is, Lord. They don't understand their wretchedness. They don't understand they're blind. They don't understand they're naked. Maybe they are ashamed. But Lord, You're there. You're reaching out to them. You're reaching out to them right now. You're knocking on the door of their heart. If there's anyone, He's knocking. Just turn to Him. And let Him cleanse you. Let Him clothe your shame and your nakedness. Let Him give you eye style so you'll see, so that you'll know what you were created for, so you'll know the relationship you can have with God, so He can come into your heart and dine and, and fellowship with you because that's what He wants. He made you to know Him and to fellowship with Him. So if there's anyone listening, open your heart to God today. Turn to Him. Repent. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to come into your heart. And He'll come in and He'll dine with you. So Lord, I pray that for anyone listening, God, that You would draw them this morning to You. And for us, Lord, I pray You will renew our first love. I pray, O God, as I prayed earlier, You would open up our understanding Because of the faith we have come into. Because, Lord, at one time in all of our lives, You opened our eyes, Lord. God, I pray You would deepen our knowledge. I pray our roots would go deeper and deeper into Your love. I pray for everyone here, Lord, and anyone listening, God, that You would open up their understanding. That they would know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. And Lord, I pray that Your love would be manifested to us, but also through us, to one another, Lord, that You would truly be glorified in and through Your body. And Lord, I thank You how You're drawing us. I thank You, God, for what You've been doing in every heart, Lord. And God, we're going to look to You. We're going to trust You to perfect that love in us and through us. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.